The following program is supported by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. Close your eyes for a couple of minutes. Just close them tight. And are you any less intelligent? Are you any less incapable? Oh, I'm getting emotional. It's really hard to talk about. When I would talk to people about me having autism, they'd look at me and they'd be like, you don't look autistic. Marie, why don't you want to go to school anymore? And I said, because Roger picks on me. Are you any less mobile just because you've got your eyes closed? And the answer is no. He doesn't look autistic or he'll grow out of it or everyone's just a little bit autistic or on the spectrum. We got that a lot and we get that a lot. And this is what happens is when young people like that are bullied, they don't want to go, they don't feel like they fit in, they're not being included. You know, we all just need to break down these barriers and stigmas and just all get along. I'm not that comfortable with saying I'm a dwarf, but that's up to me to say it. It's not up for someone to call me that. If you knew what autism is and the challenges that we face on a daily basis, you wouldn't be making such a bold comment like that. I think it comes down to misconceptions and misrepresentation. Don't label people, don't put labels on people. Treat each person as an individual, whether they have special needs or not. Each person is unique in their own way. Each person strives in their own way. Because I want people to understand the experience because then they can understand how to communicate with others, how to be inclusive and supportive of people who are going through limb difference where they themselves can't represent what they're going through. My disability does not define me. I don't have a disability. I have a different ability because I am differently abled. Prepare to shatter preconceived notions and misconceptions about disabilities with 2MFM's groundbreaking interview series, Differently Abled. Be inspired by a group of individuals who are challenging stereotypes every day. Differently Abled. Paving the way for a more inclusive tomorrow.
Many people take for granted the very legs and feet that carry the weight of their bodies that facilitate many of the repetitive physical demands of their daily life. Walking, running, jumping and driving. Just imagine one day you become the subject of a traumatic accident that results in an amputation. An amputation is not something you ever think would be a part of your story, but it's the story and reality of many people around the world. In Australia alone, amputees represent one in every 1,000 individuals in Australia and about one lower limb amputation is performed somewhere in the country every hour. Every experience is unique, from people who have had their limb differences since birth to others who have had a limb amputation due to accident, injury or disease. Regardless of the reason, losing a limb is never easy. Both mentally and physically, an amputation can affect a person and change their life as well as the lives of their loved ones. Despair, depression, nervousness, anxiety, loss of self-esteem, stigma and isolation. These are some of the harsh realities that people with limb difference have to face throughout their life. And today it's my pleasure to talk to Daryl Spark, the president of the Amputee Association of New South Wales, who is leading the New South Wales amputee community and advancing the needs for those living with limb loss. He acquired his below-knee amputation over 40 years ago through trauma. Today, we will learn more about how he is breaking barriers, challenging misconceptions about amputees and normalising life with a prosthetic. He is here to give us the reality of living life as a below-knee amputee. Daryl, thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Nadia. I'm very happy to be here. So how old were you when you lost your leg? I was, I was quite young in the scheme of amputation demographics. I was five years of age. It, uh, I was, I'd actually just turned five some um, eight days earlier. So what kind of incident were you involved in that led to your amputation? Mine was a slightly different one um, in, in terms of how, um, the environment. I was actually at school um, and back in those days in the early 70s, most schools often had students perform many tasks on site as well as uh, support structures. So I was actually, um, I slipped under technically, I fell underneath a ride-on lawnmower during, during school hours and, um, and lost my right leg wow. as a consequence. So do yeah. you recall the graphic details of that incident? Do you remember it quite vividly even though you were remarkably young? Yes, look, it's something I've never, I've never really attached uh, on any one level something so significant to it, except that it remains probably one of the most profound um, visual memories that I have. Um, I can recall the shine on the, the on the wet rock that I slipped on. I stepped on a rock and slipped in and underneath the path of the mower. I remember that. I remember um, the events that followed for the next. Uh, 20 minutes um, after that event, although I did have a memory loss of about three months from between that time until I, I'm ready to leave the hospital uh, three months later. Mm, I can imagine it would have most definitely been a really confronting scene. The nature of that incident is quite gruesome and you would have most likely lost a lot of blood, right? 
Yeah, look, um, back in those days, as I said, it was it was in the 70s. Not a lot of our teams of uh, educators uh, were trained in how to deal with emergency situations, basic first aid. Because I, I was very lucky that the that was a small bush school of about um, 14 children. Uh, so I only had one teacher. That, that teacher at the time was a relief teacher. Uh, I'm very fortunate uh, that that teacher acted quickly. Um, he um, pretty much picked me up, threw me in the front seat of the, the, the Kingswood bench seat back in those days and sped off into town approximately 20 kilometres away. Mm. Um, unfortunately, um, he didn't tourniquet me because I weren't sort of trained. It was a, quite a shock to him and, and the impact was quite profound, not just on me, but also on the other children and particularly on that teacher. Um, that's something they had to live with uh, for the rest of their lives. And, yeah, I did I did arrive in the emergency uh room at uh, the, the base hospital for that for that country region um, um, rather short uh, on blood uh, and my life in, in, in the balance. Mm. Are you still in contact with the people who witnessed that gruesome scene? Look, it, it's, um, I was up until recently um, in contact with most of those people. Um, some of them have dropped away over the many decades. Um, yeah. Not a young man that I used to be. Mm. Um, unfortunately, I haven't been in contact with the teacher, but the community around me at the time was very supportive and, and very socially strong as a community. And I think um, that certainly held held me in a, a fairly strong position to grow through the process. Mind you, a lot of these things you discover, the trauma effects um, that can occur in childhood often come out in adulthood and you don't discover the, the real impacts um, long-term. You see the short-term stuff early on, but you don't see the long-term stuff until you're an adult. Mm. So you learn new things all the time, even I'm still learning new things about the experience and how to shape my behaviours uh, and the people around me. So were there any, uh, I guess, emotional and psychological impacts that you faced soon after as a result of that terrible accident? Yeah, look, uh, early on, obviously, the trauma for a child is, is quite significant. And we all, at a very early age, develop a, a representation in our minds about who we are and what we look like. Uh, and with those who witnessed that, and I know that um, many, you know, even, even the person writing the night obviously had a significant trauma effect um, caused by that and had post-traumatic stress um, from that incident. Um, but back in then, there wasn't a lot of psychological supports or uh, care for, for counselling and that sort of stuff during that period. But they sort of flowed on. So for me, there was a range of traumas about fears and nightmares, and those nightmares translated into effects into my family. Yeah, you can only imagine the yep. effect. And I, it wasn't until the late 70s, early early 80s when I um, went through a range of um, uh, proceedings that I learnt the, the dramatic impact it had, particularly on my parents and shaping them. You know, my mother, um, because I used to have terrible nightmares that I couldn't remember, but I would wake myself up and my parents, you know, recanted as I got older. My mother once said to me, the, you know, um, said to someone else, I was to say, uh, the blood-curdling screams that would happen at night time um, in the, my subconscious that would take place um, when I went to sleep. So, And that affected, uh, affected my, my brother and my sister um, quite profoundly, but most effectively it really impacted my, my mum and dad. 
Mm, I can imagine that, you know, that impact translates onto your family as well. Um, It's not just the individual himself or herself, but it's also the family that experienced some of the the trauma and some of, you know, the sense of struggle and sadness watching you go through what you were going through. Growing up, how were you treated by other children? Did you face any kind of remarks or stigma? Did you experience any bullying because of your amputated leg? Look, as I said, I, I did transition from a small country town school, sort of or village school, into a much larger high school. And that's when I probably really sort of found the stigma and perception quite profound at that point. You know, growing up as a, as a primary school child with a close-knit community, didn't experience so much bullying, no more than, you know, the difficulties of coping with growth, but in into into high school, that's where I I noticed a, a significant change in people's perceptions of me, um, the outward persona effect, what they see is what they anticipate, people's biases, and there's we all have and live with our own biases. So certainly there's elements of um, confusion um, for other people as well as myself. So a bit of bullying in there. There was some remarks and and certainly some stigmas, and I know that I grew up really not competing academically with my peers in school and high school, but more so trying to be their equal physically because that's where I envisaged that I was um, most uh, inferior or, or felt the pressure to fit in, physically competing in a sports style approach. So that was that was really quite challenging. Mm. Some of the subtleties of stigma come out as you get a a better understanding about yourself. It's in the latter years of teenagehood into young adulthood that you really see some of the stigmas and behaviours um, that come out of other people. And that's not necessarily because they're bad people, but it's because it's an experience ignorance. If you don't live the experience, how can you imagine someone's uh, perceptions and feelings around that experience that they have? Absolutely. And as a society, if we don't give children with limb differences that support and encouragement that they need, they are vulnerable to feeling shy about their differences. And and if we're not careful, they can end up feeling quite excluded and even isolated. So did you just want to be held to the same standard as everyone else? I think that was pretty pretty profound in me at that stage. Um, you know, um, I, I if running is a classic example. If you're a lower limb amputee, uh, especially as a child, being able to run um, is a remarkably different thing. It's a constant work effort to 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 walk and to run at the same level you might have uh, done previously or with other children around you. So, it 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 is it is an interesting um, understanding of the situation to say you know how do the, how do the other people around you match that standard and how do you then judge yourself? And I think um, there's always pressure on ourselves more than anybody else to meet what we believe other people's expectations are of us. And certainly that's very true as a teenager. We don't want to, being a teenager at the best of times, is hard. Mm. Imagine when you've got a limb difference and, and people judge you and you, you imagine they judge you even more so than probably they do judge you. So that's, you know, it's, it's just almost a self-sabotage effect that takes place. So 
um, it does require a lot of support, but it, it requires an understanding and, and a recognition that needs to happen both within the community around you um, and within yourself to, to move forward. Mm. I can imagine you probably would have put a lot of scenarios in your head, how people perceive you, what people are thinking about you, and that would really inflict a lot of harm mentally. You know, your self-esteem will decline even further the more you think of yourself in that way. But generally speaking, you were surrounded right by a supportive and tight-knit community where you were. How important do you think having a good support system is for someone who has a limb difference? Because we see ourselves outwardly looking in as being different, we're the first ones to recognise the concept of difference. Limb difference is such an obvious thing that I think not having a supportive network can really have an amazingly profound effect on how you progress through your disability. And certainly with limb difference, that's the case. We often would describe the amputee or limb different community as the hidden community because we tend to hide our difference because it's physical and it's so obvious and standout. So for as individuals, that, that's a really important thing to, to think about um, that we are obvious and so if you don't embrace your difference with all the positive aspects you you supplant that with a negative effect and that negative effect is going to shape the way you grow and the way that people treat you as well because they're, they're going to respond to how you present yourself and how confident you are within yourself for who you are. Did you feel like you had to hide some of the struggles that you were facing trying to you know appear strong I guess in that time? Yeah, look, I think there was a lot of that. And I, look, there's still part of that. It still exists today. <laughs> um, we all have as adults the desire to have a representation of ourselves that we give to other people. I, I was very lucky in the sense that I, along the journey, I realised that it's okay to be vulnerable and recognise that vulnerability doesn't mean weak. Um, it means more, more so about being open. And I, and I see things these, these days about being open. I remember playing tennis for my school, my high school, and... and and a young lady in in um, in the stands and I were talking during another match, and she said, "Oh, you must be so brave! I could never do that, or be that this this person who goes out and plays tennis and does this stuff with one leg." And I was really embarrassed because um, I'm not special. Mm. I'm like everybody else. There's nothing super brave about me. Um, okay, um, I'm not going to jump in and fight a shark for you or, or, or take on a super villain. Uh, I've got all the same problems that everybody else does. But I think. Um, how we perceive ourselves and how that effect flows forward is really important. I think for me as an individual, and particularly at that time, I had a whole range of reservations about who I was. And to, and to deal with them, you tend to compensate. So I think I think it's really important to understand that our self-representation and, and behaviours are a really big part of that. You tend to find that as an individual, you, you start to take on these concepts and, and apply these behaviours to yourself and you try and compensate for, for little bits and pieces around who you think you should be and how you want to interact. And as an individual, they start quite early. So not having the support structure there means that you don't learn until later that you've developed all these not necessarily productive behaviours or perceptions of yourself. And I think it's really important that young people who start the experience, and even for older people who are new to an experience of them difference, have this right sort of supports around them to recognise um, how to deal with these emotions and the effects that other people 
um, and our own perceptions of what we think other people have uh, will shape the way we move forward. And that's one of the things we, we try and encourage is making sure that people have access to the lived experience ahead of them in, in that life in that life pipeline because that's going to have an impact on how well they perform and, and grow and live quality, quality of life outcomes. And especially in terms of family support, they're the people, again, who go through it with us. But they eventually reach a point where they feel quite helpless because there's only so much that they can do. So at the time, were your parents equipped with the right tools, information and support that they need for taking care of a child with limb difference? I mean, things were a lot different back in the days. There is a lot more information, tools and awareness now to support those families. But how was it back then? It, it was really small. There was not a lot of people going through that experience. Um, certainly where we were, it's quite rare. Look, there were, I, I'm lucky enough that there were a couple of other children about the same age um, uh, that went through the experience but just at different times. I think the support, um, unfortunately, didn't exist for my parents. You know, as a, as a parent, you don't imagine the, the effects that will have on um on yourself and your family when something happens. Well, there's no preparation effect that you can have. You know, your child's about to go through this traumatic event that that comes from a, um, from an accident in some way or even a disease. And so for parents, it's really, really challenging. That helplessness is one of the things I um, etched in my mind is the look on my father's face in the emergency mm. room, that, the look of helplessness yeah. as he held my hand because, I, you know, I was basically dying in front of him. And... The look on his face was something I can never remove from my memory. And I know that my parents had to go through this, this like, I, like I help with many families, this element of helplessness. helplessness. Um, they can't do things for you. You have to do things yourself. You have to learn things. They can only be there to support you and offer insight. But they need that structure too because it's overwhelming for them watching um, a loved one go through the process. I think that over time progress and support has been there but ideally it comes from people living with the same experience other families have gone down that road again saying hey we're here you can reach out and have a conversation understanding um, the emotional challenges that come come with that support structure um, we don't live in isolation we're a family unit and and that's highly profound it is absolutely critical um, to have that really solid support system during your journey. Um, let's start talking about your prosthetic. Um, what kind of prosthetic do you wear? So I have a, what's called a transtibial uh, prosthesis or a below knee prosthesis. My amputation is um, about 20 centimetres up from my from where my heel would have been or my ankle. So um, it's a, a transtibial um, or below knee prosthesis um, just basically I sit with what's called my stump or residual limb goes into a socket and that socket then is connected to a pylon and then to a, a foot that allows me to get similar sort of kinetic response and energy return responses that an organic foot might give um, mm. in, in that circumstance. How remarkably different were the amputee technologies and prosthetics in comparison to now? How have things changed over the years? It, it's, it's quite remarkable in many ways. I mean, I, I've, my, I still have my first prosthesis uh, that I received as a little boy, and it's made of wood and a bit of fiberglass um, because I grew so fast. Um, my father would cut 
um, a rubber spacer out of old car tyres to put in between mm. the foot and mm. the wooden structure in order to match my growth rate. Um, that's, and back then, the foot, there was no kinetic risk energy response out of the feet. In fact, the foot that is on that prosthetic was actually made before I was born um, and then shipped out to Australia to, to be stockpiled for when it, when you know, they needed to hand it on to, to a child. So we're talking about very old technology that wasn't very responsive compared to what I wear today, which is through technology advances and, and material advances and things like carbon fibre and engineering processes. I can The things I can do now um, on the foot that I wear every day is remarkably advanced. It's 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 like walking around uh, with concrete boots and suddenly you're bouncing around on springs. Mm. It's and that's really fantastic. But it's the, probably the greatest advance in addition to that is what we call the suspension system, how my leg, my stump, my residual limb actually connects to the socket. Uh, back in those days, we had woolen socks, and uh, and they were they were they were great right up until you started started to perspire, which is you know 15 minutes into your day. And, and they were unforgiving. So you, it came with pain um, quite a lot. But now we have these other technologies around silicons and polyurethanes and, and shaping and design around the sockets. So they're comfortable. We don't, we don't have the sort of pain um, necessarily that we might have had from a socket back in those days. And this has a great impact on how much work we can do, you know, mm. how much more we can get around. I, I wear my prosthetic, you know, um, you know, 20 hours a day sometimes, um, depending on my workload. And and it's got to be comfortable all the time. Uh, when I was younger, even up to my 20s, I, I wouldn't be able to wear my leg um, any greater than than sort of 15 hours a day because it was the technology just didn't support that kind of that kind of use. Mm, and that really uh, reiterates how you know decades ago losing a limb would have posed a profound number of challenges for people. But obvi- obviously, as the years have passed, uh, the invention and development of prosthetics has really opened the door to a new world of possibilities for amputees. You know, we've seen how much technology has dramatically improved and now prosthetics are able to be constructed so that amputees can live life um, as much as other people can so that they can surf play sport you know do the things that other people do but did you have an easy time I guess adapting to a prosthetic device because of your age because it happened so early on was it easier for you to adapt or did you find that there were some struggles because of how the prosthetic was made yeah look it, it, it is it is easier because as a child your capacity to grow and learn is, is much greater than an adult so for me to go through the process today is remarkably different from going through the process back in those very early years so um and i think we have while well, we have um, all these allied teams like a physiotherapists who are trained in the process of gait development, so we have to learn how to use our our limbs, whether that be upper limb or lower limb. But certainly in the lower limb space, learning to walk with um, a giant boot and missing a foot is a whole new process. Um, only a very rare few can 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 take to it quickly without any real training. But most of the time, you actually have to relearn you know, how to use this foot because your brain, your nervous system is expecting to interact with the leg and, of course, it can't anymore. So um, you've, got to, you've got to develop a series of habits and you have to teach that person to maintain those habits because those habits have a profound impact 
down the track on their body posture and, and how, how wear and tear affects other parts of their body. The big thing for, for an amputee, anybody with limb difference, is a breakdown of symmetry. And we don't, uh, as a human being, we don't normally take um, such a significant interest in our own organic symmetry until it's broken. And then we discover it creates a whole range of other problems ongoing that is, you know, does form a degradation effect um, over time. And how do lower limb and upper limb amputation patients differ in terms of their recovery process? Are leg amputees, I guess, more likely to use a prosthetic than arm amputees are? I mean, I've heard that many arm amputees actually prefer to adapt to life using only their other hand. Yeah, look, it's it's a very interesting part. I mean, we we take for granted walking around with two legs so much, um, and when you take one away or even take two away, the impact on your mobility has a profound effect, uh, as a really significant effect on your mental health. Right, and so mobility is one of those things as a human being that really is important to us. It's all about independence, but that doesn't mean that losing an arm doesn't impact your mobility and options for prosthetics. It also does, and and yes. Well, a, a, below, a lower limb amputee will get on prosthetics as quickly as they can and get walking. It's often quite difficult for an upper limb to capitalise on the effect. Now, big big thing about that is that our arm is such a dexterous organ. Like, it's such a complex, we don't able to do such fine motor control functions with our arm and our dependency on it is quite high. So when you take one away, a prosthesis, um, certainly historically, um, doesn't have anywhere near the same capacity um, as it might have been for a lower limb in terms of capacity. Mm. So um, not often do we walk around and pick up things with our toes uh, every day, but we do that with our fingers. So when you have a prosthesis and it can't do those very minute dexterous, uh, dexterous range of functions, it can become quite challenging to get the value out of it. It's a bit of a double-edged sword, though. If you if you are missing an arm or have an upper limb difference, you're missing a hand. All the work that you would do naturally on that arm now transfers to the other arm, which means it's doing twice the amount of work. So the risk of that arm breaking down and getting an injury is is, is going to go up rather quickly. And then the fact that it's hurt, you kind of without two arms. <laughs> so it's really important to understand that supports for upper limbs is so essential because it will it will very rapidly degrade their quality of life. And it could take 10 years or longer, depending on how things go. It could take longer for that to take effect. But for some people, it can happen rather quickly, especially if they're young during that process. So um, it's only with the advent of the NDIS and new technologies in the last decade and a half that we've seen people get a greater range of functions. And I don't think people understand perhaps the prosthetic space for upper limbs, but um, the old style of, of prosthetics which use in upper limb space, which use cables and our body posture, we have to use our natural behaviours and, and movements to pull on cables to affect it, and even things like opening and closing a claw. Those sort of cable pulling technologies are the same sort of stuff that Leonardo da Vinci worked on uh, with <laughs> his, his design. So they've been around a long time, but they don't quite equate to the same function. So, yes, you are correct. A lot of upper limb amputees don't necessarily use prosthetics because they can't get the level of function they want. But there is that double-edged sword effect that not having something as a support means that the work gets transferred to some other part of your body. Again, that's symmetry. 
And of course, although a prosthetic device or prosthesis can play such a significant role in rehabilitation, they do come with certain challenges. So what kind of challenges do you face or have faced with your prosthetics? I mean, one thing that a lot of people do talk about is the constant growth that you're faced with. I mean, how did you keep up with that? How did you manage through it? How many revisions did you have throughout your lifetime? Oh, look, I, I cannot quote the number of revisions. I can tell you, quote for you that in one year as a child during a growth spurt, now understand that any child can grow and I think a record for growth in, in the Guinness records is two centimetres overnight, yeah. right? So it's a, across the body. So um, for children, growth is the big thing, right? So up until the age you become an adult and your growth rate stops or effect stops, you can grow overnight. But I remember having nine, sorry, ten legs in one year. Wow. Now, that's a lot of work. That's, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of work for ten Ten legs. I only I only got used to one, and then I had to replace it because I'd grown so much it didn't fit. Now, a socket on a prosthetic leg is a containment vessel, but you, your growth isn't going to push it out. So that means something pays a price. So when a prosthetic socket doesn't fit, it usually creates pain and injury. Mm-hmm. So you have to, for a child, you have to rapidly change that. It's actually reversed when you become an adult and become um, fixed in your height and your body structure. You still fluctuate. But more so you have an issue of what we call shrinkage because there's a volume, fluid volume effect about being in a container. And so um, this, the, it's, it's, really an inter- it's a really complex and interesting space and I, and I don't want to confuse the, the process, but the socket as an adult not just contains your stump or your residual limb, but it also helps shape it because we, we were never really designed to be contained in a hard shell. We're not a crab. Hmm. So they can shed their shells. We have to do the same effect with prosthetics. So, you know, it can quite quickly cause an injury or harm um, to a a residual limb, to a stump, uh, a wound that could get infected. And if your health conditions aren't quite well, say if you're a vascular patient or a diabetic patient where your healing features or functions are are lower than than someone else, then, you know, that wound could become life-threatening. So the risk associated with socket fit um, and the implications of use are really important. But there's also the, the concept of you've got a, an organic body or your you know, flesh tissue inside a socket moving around and you're trying to do functions um, like everybody else, that you get wear and tear, and it's only natural. You get cuts and abrasions, bruises and wounds um, from doing work, and which, of course, is so essential, or moving around, which is so essential to our quality of life, and certainly here in Australia. Mm. Now, there is a misconception that many people hold about amputees, and it's this idea that someone with limb loss doesn't want anyone to notice or ask about their prosthesis. Do you wear it with pride? Are you typically open to talking about it? I think um, I think as I'm very open to talking about it, and I think the big thing for me was um, my mother would say recount a story um, in in a in our little town where we were in the central west, um, where um, one day walking down the street with um, a family friend, uh, she turned around and noticed I wasn't in there, but I was inside the shop window. I I don't remember it myself. Inside the shop window, taking my leg off and on for the crowd uh, that had formed to watch me mm. um, inside <laughs> the window. 
so I would say I'm pretty pretty out there in terms of engagement. I was only seven or so at the time. Mm. Um, really important to understand that we don't work in isolation, and that means with strangers as well. So being open to the discussion is really important. A lot of amputees, especially in the early parts of their experience, find it difficult. They're trying to cope with what's changed for them um, and the emotions that come along with that. But also, um, it's a challenging space, to, confronting space as an individual to look back at yourself and, and deal with some of this. And you become an object, as I said. Um, people notice the, the physical difference very quickly. That's how human beings operate. We are different engines. We look for things that are different and then figure out why they're different. So for an amputee or someone with a difference, you stand out. So it's not unusual to want to hide or not talk about it if you are, haven't emotionally come to terms with it. And, as both the visuals effect and the emotional effect on and the loss of your or quality of life mm. scenario. So I think um, for me, it's quite easy to be open because I want people to understand uh, the experience because then they can understand how to communicate with others, how to be inclusive and supportive of people who are going through limb difference where they themselves can't represent what they're going through. Mm, absolutely. Uh, to me, that's about being socially, you know, uh, responsible uh, to share the experience. If, if I don't jump in and, and share the experience, how do you know how to treat me? How do you know how to communicate with someone else who isn't necessarily as open or even comfortable with what's happened to them? That really reduces the assumptions that people have. So it's good to know that you are open to people approaching you and you know answering the questions that they have about it. I mean, we know typically people might have that inquisitive stare when they notice a prosthetic leg. It's that you know inquisitive nature in us. We're being quite nosy, wanting to know what's going on. But really, it's important uh, to engage in conversation because it's another way to remove the stigma spread awareness um, about it and, and be more you know help you become more comfortable living with limb loss and we know what's common for amputees is to, to face quite uncomfortable situations there are a lot of things that we might say or do that certainly don't help someone who has undergone a life-altering experience and I think a lot of people do struggle with communication with someone who has an amputation. So what would your advice be in terms of, you know, how we should communicate or treat someone with a limb difference? Are there certain phrases or remarks that should be avoided? Look, there, there are. And we, we, I spend a lot of time working with health teams as well. You know, we all want to be supportive of other people. That's human nature to be compassionate and the desire. And as we pointed out, staring is, a, is, a, is commonly a misconception. Um, if you're negative-minded, someone stares at you, you imagine they're thinking negative things about you. Um, but that's easily fixed. And I, a classic example is, you know, I've had people say, you know, people stare at me when I walk down the street and I get angry and I say these things to them. And the question is, is that about them thinking those things or about you feeling that's how you should respond because you're not comfortable with yourself? And it's okay not to be comfortable with what's happening. But communication and understanding why people do things is really important. Um, and we always learn about ourselves in many ways. But certainly very common for me to walk down the street. I'm always wearing shorts um, and when I'm not in my professional space. And... And people often stare because that difference engine takes over. You know, children are the best because they always have questions. They come out and ask. They're always uh, honest why, and open. They are. They're beautiful. And, you know, I I remember running into some 
some tourists on the Gold Coast a few years ago who didn't speak English. Um, and their, their little boy, who probably was about um, five at the time, spotted my leg and pointed and came over to, to have a look. And, and strangely enough, we can do this. I took it off and, and, and gave it to him to have a play with and a look at. And his parents, of course, were, were most most embarrassed that he wanted to find out. But he just he needed the opportunity and they needed the opportunity um, to not feel so stressed. But it's also good for me to share the experience. Much harder with an adult because... Uh, a child, you can, you kind of have expectations. They're a, a learning machine. They want to, they want to learn and understand, and they, and they accept you for who you are rather quickly. Adults have preconceptions, mm. and I think that's really important to understand that sharing that and those preconceptions, then they're not necessarily negative. So if you can share and experience and ask questions, that's great. But you also have to remember, we need to ask questions in the right way. You know, and sometimes in, in, in a very politically correct environment, um, it, it can be challenging and people people feel in many circumstances they that it's not okay to ask questions. What's really important in language is understanding what people want. And most people, especially amputees, want recognition. This the I see you effect, you know, so understanding is really important. Now an amputee's mind has a little switch in it and when you become an amputee, um, if you're talking to someone who isn't an amputee, you instantly bias against them about understanding how you feel. So certainly for the bias of, in that circumstance, um, I always say to people, don't fall into the trap of feeding the negativity for an amputee. Don't say, hey, look, you know, I, my sympathy is there. It's all more about empathy and compassion. So we say, don't say, I understand. Because they're not gonna, they're not gonna like that. Mm, because <laughs> you know, they, they might understand. say, for I example, I know someone yeah. who is an amputee. I understand what you're going through, but yeah, the reality yeah. is, you don't know what that person's going through unless you're an amputee yourself, right? Well, that's right. We empathise with it. That's right. So you, we all. I mean, the honesty is, we never live anybody else's life in their shoes. So we only understand what we have experienced and can relate back to that. So I often say to people. Don't say I understand. Simply say, look, I can't understand what your experience has been, but I'd really like to know more so I can be more uh, responsive and compassionate and help people more effectively. That's recognition. The recognition of saying, look, I don't know what you've been through, but I'd like to be able to help you. Now, that's really important because that's recognition. That's what we first need to start good communications and develop uh, a relationship and a good outcome. That's very profound part mm. of that equation. A lot of people, when they learn of someone's amputation, the first question they ask is, what happened? Is that, <laughs> for some people, considered insensitive because it might cause the amputee to relive the trauma and pain? I mean, today, obviously, you shared your story. You're one of those people who are quite open to talking about what happened. But should that be something that is avoided because there are some people who relive that trauma by talking about it. I think it's appropriate that people um, be respectful of the sensitivities that some other person may have about their situation. And while someone like myself is open to talk about it and happy to, it's always, some, I think, a good point is to start with that. I recognise you and then go, look, can I ask you some questions? Are you okay with that? I, you know, I, 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 
I would say that that's a very respectful recognition of somebody's feelings because that gives them a chance to go, you know what, I really appreciate that you've, you've recognised I may not be comfortable with what you would present. Um, and that's a learned experience. You've got to teach people that, to stop and go, hang on a minute, can I ask you some questions um, to get a better understanding? Um, a lot of people don't. They'll often just blurt something out. That's not necessarily a bad intention. So certainly for an amputee, you also got to keep in mind what's per, what the other person's intention. You know, are they there to be negative when they communicate with you? Or are they there to be positive? It's a self-reflective uh, conversation that needs to happen in, in that respect. So I think it's it's really important to, for people to understand that the other person may not be comfortable. So it's a good idea to say, look, can I ask that question? Are you okay sharing that with me? If it's if it's not okay, accept that and wish them all the best in their journey. Mm. Should we avoid saying things like you're an inspiration or good for you or you're so <laughs> courageous to someone with an amputation? I mean, it's a kind-hearted gesture, right? But do some amputees find it patronising? Oh, look, they do. There's no question about it. Um, there's no question we find it patronising. And as I said earlier, being asked by this young lady at tennis, you know, told, being told how brave I am. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I am not brave. Okay, look, I... You know, as a adult, young adult, I said I was probably stupid, not brave. Um, putting yourself in funny situations and doing different things, but I think, I think the patronising effect is its intention is not negative. Its intention is not bad. It may be a little ignorant um, of a, or insensitive to imagine that you are pushing uh, perception onto someone. You're you're doing this transference effect on somebody else who's not necessarily willing to accept. Um, what you're offering them. Mm, so Being an inspiration mm. is, is something that you take on for yourself and work towards. But I think um, I think I think it's I think it's important that again that people recognise that, that that person you know will will tell you if they like communicating about their about their leg. But I, I wouldn't normally walk up and go, "Hey, you're an inspiration." Um, <laughs> um, you know, uh, look, I've, I've got plenty of mates, Paralympian friends. We're all, uh, you know, we're all uh, well acquainted and, and get around. And 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 I think the Aussie larrikin in me always likes to stir them up rather than tell them how much of an inspiration they are, mm. because intrinsically, we're all living our own journey. And you know, shouldn't every? I'm, I'm inspired by my children, and they're not. They don't have an amputation. Um, yeah. And I think it's, and, and, you know, inspiration is such a personal thing. So to put it on someone often makes them feel uncomfortable. Is the reason because you don't consider yourself disadvantaged because you're missing a limb, right? <laughs> Look, I think I think we. I spent so much time as a young a younger person trying to be physically equal or better mm. um, than my peers. And back in, as I said, the day, technology didn't really help out there. But um, I found my own in my own certain way, and and I. I think we, we do challenge ourselves and we're never satisfied with some parts of ourselves, but that's human nature. Uh, that a, a good person wants to work out how they can be a better person, and whether that's physical, or emotional, psychological, uh, relationship-based, it's, it's always going to be there uh, for the right people. And I think, you know, um, because we do judge ourselves, then we're going to have a look at that process. So we are a little bit critical as human beings about where we're at and, and what we're doing. Again, I think it comes down to this this comfort effect and and our growth, personal growth through the space and the and the and the, and the process. I've got 
plenty of friends with ranges of disabilities and and I think you, they just want to be treated as if that's normal because it is normal you know the world is massive the population is incredibly large and every diversity exists within that population but we all want one thing just to be treated as equals if you see an amputee struggling with let's say their wheelchair or to pick something up that they've dropped on the floor should you jump right in to help or is it better to ask the person if they need help and allow them the opportunity to decline their offer i think um i think every situation can be can be a little different but i think it's always again a good a good idea to say hey would you like a hand would you like some assistance with that it, it might even happen while you're picking it up. And look, I hold the door open for people. I'll I'll help people with their gear. <laughs> I remember uh, at the twenty uh, the two thousand Olympics in Sydney, um, in a massive crowd with my brother, um, a little boy getting separated from his parents on an escalator. He didn't want to get on the escalator, and by the time he was thinking about it, they were at the bottom with about four thousand people surrounding him. And so you jump in and, and support each other and brought that child back to his parents. But I think I've had people reach down and pick up things that I've dropped, imagining that, you know, it would be more difficult for me to do that. Um, it's always nice to ask. That's the, again, it comes back to that recognition. You recognise that person has their own abilities, they're unique, but sometimes the best of us need a little bit of assistance and it doesn't hurt to, to make that question a part of the response. Um, and you gain something from it doing that as much as they gain something from it as well. Absolutely. I mean, you don't have to walk on eggshells to avoid saying the wrong thing, especially if you ask your loved one um, how they want to talk about it. There's no one-size-fits-all method for communication, but I'm really glad that you shared some basic principles that will help set the foundation and set us in the right direction. But there are so many assumptions that people have what are some things that you think many people misunderstand about being an amputee? Well, um, I, I think there's so there's so many um, different things that come into it. And depending on where the people come from, if you're general population, general community, imagine that you can't do things. And that's an individual thing, you know. Um, how many people can run a half marathon? How many people can skip rope for 15 minutes? How many people can do 20 push-ups? Um, what's the scope of someone's capacity physically? What's the scope of their desire to do something physically? I, th I think the biases that we carry happen across all different diversity. You know, we have biases between um, men, women, and, and we have assumptions as individuals for ourselves and others. I think it's really important to... To, to learn to stop with assumptions, with these biases for ourselves as, as well as for others. I think you, you learn through the, the, the experience of questioning and asking an individual what it is the range of things that they need help with. It's, it's a, again, it's, it can be, you know, if you don't step in to help someone when they look like they're struggling, are you? Are you doing the wrong thing when you could have been helping them? It's always that, do yeah, I do hold if? the door open? Do I not hold the door open? What if I – and it becomes a complex problem then because you're too busy arguing with yourself about whether you're going to you know, cause some sort of emotional kerfuffle. Um, I think the things that we, we need to be mindful are, again, come back to this understanding of boundaries for somebody. Um, there are some things that are going to be obvious and some things that are not going to be obvious. 
in that process. But being open to talking to that person, allowing them the space to share their boundaries, whether that's self-imposed boundaries or conditional boundaries around their circumstance, that's really important because that's not just respectful to that person, but also um, it's compassionate for their requirements. I think that certainly for individuals, uh, amputees in particular struggle depending on their circumstance. Like I don't struggle with bending over to pick up something off the ground, but someone who might have an above knee amputation uh, may have more difficulty. Um, and it may be obvious for having difficulty. But again, if you don't ask the question, you know, hey, can I help you? Um, how, how will you find out what those expectations are? Big thing for us is that amputees often get told they can't do stuff. And that's alluded to and because our own perception is about how we operate. Driving is a classic example. Um, I have no dorsiflex and plantiflex on my right foot. That's my prosthesis. Um, but I still drive a car. Why do I drive a car? How can I use the throttle on the floor? Uh, I can do that because um, the throttle on the floor doesn't care if I'm a human being or an octopus. It doesn't <laughs> care because it's just a throttle. It's a, it's a mechanical device. How I use it is a feature of me, the human being who is adaptable. Sometimes I've got adaption skills. Sometimes I don't have adaption skills depending on the task. And, and if we make assumptions about what I can and can't do, I must admit, I'm, I'm, my background is Taekwondo. I'm a Taekwondo master instructor and I teach. Uh, but I remember my early days of, of Taekwondo competing in an event and having a, a you know, significant um, a practitioner and a very experienced professional master come over to me when I was just a coloured belt and saying, oh, it's great to see you. You're doing all this stuff and giving it a go. It's, it's just a shame you can't do this. And... Um, and I said, oh, you mean that kick? And I instantly turned around and did that, that, that technique in front of him, which was kind of embarrassing for him, I guess. Yeah. Um, but his perception about what my body could or couldn't do um, was all about what his expectations were of, of the mechanism. And I think, again, you know, um, we often make the mistake of imagining that if, if that wasn't how we did it, nobody could do it differently. You know? And I think that's a, that's a bit of a danger for everybody um, asking best way to solve the problem. You know, maybe, maybe they haven't learned yet. Exactly. Who knows? And that's a thing. That's, uh, you know, it comes down to assumption and criticizing those differences. Once a person hears that this person lost a limb, they instantly assume that they can't work, they can't play sport or participate fully in society. And what you've achieved in terms of your career shows that you have so much to offer in your community and that limb loss isn't the end of the story for you. So these things, these assumptions can be corrected if we embrace education, if we become more educated on the subject and more familiar with amputees, you know, amputees are just everyday people and they should not be treated any differently. So, you know, you're one of those people who spent quite a bit of time in your life trying to, you know, normalize limb loss and, and change the stigma. You know, you're still a person but at the same time, you were trying to prove to everyone that you have the ability to do what others do. But there are people who, just like you, have to find a new way to do it. And you gave an example of driving a car. There's this assumption also that amputations only occur because of 
traumatic injuries or simply from birth. But what are some other common reasons that someone might lose a limb? Um, well, that's, that's a very good question. I mean, amputation, we've got to look at what amputation is. Now, amputation, if we talk about the surgical outcome, is quite unique in terms of surgical outcomes. It is, in fact, typically a last resort, right? So it was done to save your life. So I, I often like to say, right, let's pick it up, the word amputation, put it in the bucket of a second chance at life, first of all, right? So it's an opportunity. Not, not a loss. We often go through the grief process, but it's an opportunity. So um, that, that's, that's really important to, to keep in mind in, in terms of what amputation um, means for an individual. So when it comes to, when it comes to amputation, um, we think about traumas. And look, you look back and if somebody said amputation, most people probably think Paralympians, you know, once upon a time, or we war. all thought pirates. War veterans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, war veterans, pirates. Um, uh, and look, amputation's been around, like, in the last resort, but it's also been around since uh, ancient Egypt. You know, one of the earliest device, medical devices found is, is, an, uh, is a, is a prosthetic in, in ancient Egypt. Mm. So it's been around a, a very, very long time. It can be caused by the most common causes of amputation really come down to infection and disease. Yeah. Um, that's really where it comes from. And, and typically amputation for things that relate to in the modern world relate to things like vascular disease, where blood flow to the body shifts, particularly at the extremity level. And if your body's struggling, you know, vascular problems occur in legs quite quite commonly because it's the furthest away from your heart. So your body does some shift in your toes and feet and support. That's, that's related back to other conditions like diabetes, which affects, uh, affects how your body responds. It can repair itself and deal with infections. Autoimmune deficiency and diseases can, can come into the equation. We've got cancers, um, a, a very, a very um, destructive uh, process that can kick in there is something like meningococcal, which is an infection um, that, that, that really is, is horrific in, in its essence. And while much of the effect of something like meningococcal can be internally or sepsis, the way the body responds to the infection to over-respond, might infect our internal organs, but it's our extremities that have to pay the, the price as well. So amputations take place for that as well. I mean, as you pointed out in the co earlier on, you know, in Australia, it's at least one amputation every hour for a whole range of, of causes, not just trauma um, or, or congenital difference. And, and look, there are a few elective surgeries that take place because um, retained limbs and don't necessarily provide enough function. And in order to get the effect, you might need a full amputation. So it's quite a gambit, but the big ones are trauma, uh, sorry, in the correct order would be um, um, vascular disease and diabetes, um, traumas, cancers, and infections. So really it doesn't discriminate. And, you know, a lot of people think, that they're invincible, you know, it will never happen to them. But it can happen, if not from birth, it can happen from, you know, any diseases, any cancer, and of course, in your situation, a traumatic accident. So, you know, it can happen for a number of reasons. And so it's really important to be mindful of that and to really educate ourselves on the matter. Now, to end, Daryl, what was the biggest opportunity that came about because of your amputation that you're quite grateful for? This, this is a question that I, I think I was first 
asked by someone about the age of 14. Someone said to me, I bet you wish you had your leg back. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I said, no, I would never have it back. Never have it back because I'd met some of the most remarkable people. And then we're not talking movie stars at that stage. We're not talking athletes. We're talking about support teams, health teams, professional people working with me as a child. So I'm nice enough to met some, you know, famous politicians. And I, I, I became friends with the governor of New South Wales back in the day. And it's, it's all really exciting and fantastic and they're great people. But I think... You know, the opportunities that come with it is, is really about understanding to go forward and take control, uh, to impact what I can impact and, in, and support the people going through the same process um, just at a different stage. That, to me, is one of the most significant opportunities that comes about through uh, my amputation experience. Um, understanding my own experience and how that relates to someone going through something simpler so that I might help them travel that road and find a path to the quality of life and, and the future that they want for themselves that they otherwise imagined was gone. So you can confidently say that you've reached a stage of self-acceptance. You've achieved you know, that real positive shift in mindset and you're quite happy with where you are in terms of that self-esteem and that confidence. I think it's always a struggle for people, no matter who we are, our lives are shaped about so many things from our childhood going forward. And while I'm as a person um, always looking now, especially at what it is that I am and who I am, you know, who is that in the mirror I'm looking at? Am I more confident in the physical me or, or do I need more in, in the emotional uh, relatable me? I think my confidence in my, my amputation is is almost a given um, because I know how to manage it. I've learned the experience and the boundaries of, of achieving that and that comes from another part of me that learned to accept that my amputation isn't a limit. Uh, and, and I think if you if you take on a mindset like that around your own your own amputation and lived experience, then what is the limit you can do? You know, what 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 is the limit? The limit is whatever your imagination and your heart has set for yourself, what you ever take on and, and, and go to achieve. I would never have imagined that I would become um, a father, let alone uh, a martial arts instructor. I never imagined I would run half marathons. I never imagined I would do so many things. Um, but understanding the limits I have are set by me, not by the world around me, that's, that's pretty important. Daryl, thank you so much for bringing awareness to us and helping to destigmatize limb loss through your amputation experience. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on board. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much, Nadia, for the opportunity to, to share the experience and, and I hope the world out there um, digs deep and, and finds a way to support each other as community should. I may not have legs to 